you're listening to Conversations with Scholars. This section of the podcast is dedicated to the stories of marginalized bodies in academia. This is inspired by Black feminist sociologist Jacqueline Alexander and political activist Angela Davis. Davis notes the importance of how histories never unfold in isolation, and we cannot fully know our own histories without better knowing the stories of others. So let's learn each other's stories and follow a process of retelling, revising, reflecting, and relaunching. Today's discussion is with Dr. Cassie Ose, a historian of Latin America, the African diaspora, as well as gender and sexuality. She earned her doctorate in history from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 2022. Her expertise is in Brazilian history, specializing in Black history, race relations, and Black women's studies. She teaches at Bucknell University, where she's an assistant professor of history. Her doctoral and undergraduate work was financially supported by the Fulbright-Hayes Doctoral Dissertation Abroad Program, the Foreign Language and Area Studies Program, and from other generous support from the University of Illinois and the University of Kansas. At Kansas, she was a McNair Scholar and has worked as a consultant and instructor for the program. Dr. Osei's expertise extends to grant, writing, community building, and mentorship of rising undergraduate and graduate students. So we're here today with Dr. Osei. Thank you for joining. Um, And it's Dr. Cassie Osei. We had a whole conversation before we started recording on the aesthetic of cuteness. So thank you so much for joining. Um, So before we get started, I um, would invite you to introduce yourself, um, anything you want to share about yourself and what you do, your research, and your track to graduate school. Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Fatima. Um, Well, my name is Cassie Osei. I'm a PhD in history. I obtained my PhD last May, 2022, from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Thank you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm a historian of Latin America, African diaspora, and um, modern Brazil in particular. And my research is focused on um, Black understandings, Black-defined ideas of social mobility I'm developing a book project that is taking work from my dissertation as a foundation to build upon. Um, This project is focused on Black women's ideas and subversion of the category of professionalism. So really thinking about professionalism um, in the workforce, how it's portrayed societally and thinking about it as a pathway to understand um, liberatory tracks in Brazil. Um, what else should I mention about myself? <laughs> in, my, in my non-academic sphere, uh, <laughs> I really enjoy video games. I like anime. 
Um, I enjoy reading books. I'm really on a cooking kick right now. <laughs> um, and I used to be a graphic designer. Oh, um, wow. And then before coming to graduate school and before becoming a professor of history at Bucknell University, I was a McNair scholar during my undergraduate years. So that has also defined my track from undergraduate to doctoral student to tenure track assistant professor. Thank you for, um, you know, that introduction. There's a lot of questions there and I'm, I'm proud. I'm really proud you're claiming your historianness <laughs> and you know, standing firm and I am a historian. <laughs> It's oh, funny. I am. It's you... funny being on Twitter and seeing the different conversations of like, where are all the historians? <laughs> and then they gather together. Um, but can you tell us what, um, I guess, inspired you to go down that track? Was it something that you were exposed to? Or how did you decide, like, this is the thing you wanted to kind of research and get into? Yeah, that's a great question. Um Let's see how I can make a long story short. So I, my parents are Ghanaian immigrants and I was born in Kansas, in Kansas City, Kansas. And um, I grew up in a predominantly white space. And for those who may not be aware, Kansas had a central part in the lead up to the Civil War. And so our state identity is really wrapped up in being um, anti-slavery and then mixing that with this notion vaguely that that means that we are anti-racist. Mm. So I grew up in that discourse while also growing up in the 90s and the early 2000s and being surrounded by um, these discourses of anti-Blackness that affected me as a child. Um, so it was initially like this feeling of knowing something was wrong but not having proof to articulate it and the burden being falling on me but by chance um in the fifth grade we had an american heroes project and i was assigned ida b wells and when i went to the library and i picked up the books and opened them and read through them it, I was really shocked because it dealt with the history of lynching, but I felt a sense of relief because it was the beginning of me undoing a lot of internalized racism and anti-Blackness. Because every time I would step in the classroom as a child, you know, we would talk about slavery, all of the students would look at me, and when I would go to my parents, my African parents, they would say, why, why are you upset about this? We weren't here. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so coming to grips with Ida B. Wells, it finally gave me a language that was not accessible to me. And I began to really dive deep into African-American history as a kid. Um, I went to college again, 
My parents are African immigrants. I'm the first person to go to a four-year university in this country and my immediate family. And my parents left Ghana in the 80s when there was this period of free fall, um, a free fall economy, a economy and collapse. And so their focus was um, financial security for me. So I was supposed to be a pharmacist. I went to college to study <laughs> pharmacy. I failed out of pharmacy, <laughs> out of the pharmacy track. I was kicked out. Um, Sorry, I'm not laughing at your pain, but it, it's just, I was also on a track of med school. But here See, all, of, all of us, all of us. It's all like their parents were all in the same group chat, like, hey, make sure all these kids go to med school. You know, I'm waiting for, I'm waiting. I know there are more Africans in history now um, mm. in the U.S., but I'm waiting for the person who will write the diasporic immigrant history of like Africans coming to this country and going into nursing because there are a lot um, of Africans in nursing. Yeah, that's that's going to be one interesting story. And maybe we should pass the microphone to the African immigrant elders and they're going to say, well, you know, we all had hopes and dreams. <laughs> no, that's what my, da my dad wanted to be a lawyer, but he's a nurse. Mm. Yeah. But um, yes, but before I flunked out, um, I had met a, a, a Ghanaian professor in economics who I was introduced to. And when I flunked out, she went to go talk to my dad. And my dad was like, well, what do you what are you going to do if you can't do pharmacy? And I was like, I want to be a historian. And he was like, OK. <laughs> I, he wasn't impressed, but um, this um, Ghanaian professor, her name is Elizabeth Asiedu. She's now at Howard University. Um, she really helped change the trajectory of my life because I, um, I spoke to her about, you know, the things that I really wanted to do. I wanted to be a historian. I wanted to go back to that part of me as a child who utilized history, African-American history, as a form of self-care, as a way of healing myself from the wounds of xenophobia and anti-Blackness and colorism that I experienced back in Kansas and to make sense of the what I would later come to know was called um, colorblind racism. So I was readmitted to school I started the history major. It was 2012 and um, I needed a language. And half of my family migrated to the United States and the other half lives in France. They migrated to France. So um, when I was younger, I spoke French. I learned French, but I was really, I had visited that family in France several times and I was really, disturbed by the anti-blackness there so I didn't want to learn French anymore <laughs> a lot of nonverbal cues here but yes <laughs> you can imagine as a Senegalese my English is stronger than my French and the looks I get and I'm like I refuse I mean regardless I feel like I'm, I'm I don't know I'm not falling in, in a better category maybe but <laughs> 
<laughs> we will speak this in a wallafized way. Yes. <laughs> um, so I didn't want to learn French anymore. And in history in the U.S., you need a language in order to graduate. So I had dated a guy who really liked Brazilian psychedelic music. And um, I liked the way it sounded. I thought it sounded beautiful, the way that they spoke Portuguese. And so I just randomly chose it. I had this vision that I was going to be a historian of African-American history. So languages wouldn't be important, which is not true. You should learn different languages, even if you're studying U.S. or African-American history, because... African-American history, it's a diasporic community and it exists within the broader African diaspora. But um, so I took that, I enrolled in elementary Portuguese and I was enrolled in a class also called um, the History of African Descendants in Colonial Latin America. One day we were watching a film or a video of a man named Gilberto Gil, um, who is a Black Brazilian artist. His stature is equivalent to Bob Dylan in the United States. Mm. And it was set in the 1960s, and he was playing music, and there was this huge crowd, and everybody was applauding him. And I noticed that um, there were white people and Black people in the crowd. And so I was like, oh, um, what's going on here? Because in the in the United States, that wasn't integration wasn't the case. And my instructor at the time was like, "Oh, well, Brazil's a multiracial democracy society. We have this huge history of mixing and racial interracial marriages and all of that stuff. It's a we have better race relations than the United States." And I didn't have any reason to not believe her, but also at the same time, I had no framework for understanding what she said because um, I knew there were Black people elsewhere, but I was like, Black people are in Africa or they're in the United States or the Caribbean. But even seeing somebody like Celia Cruz, who was from Cuba, or knowing that there were Black people playing on football teams in like Brazil or Colombia or whatever, it just didn't click to me that they were of African descent for some reason. Right. Um, and later I would figure that, figure out why. But um, so I just took it in stride. And then in the other class, I learned it was a rude awakening that Brazil was the last country in the Americas to abolish slavery in 1888. And so it was like, well, wait a minute. How can you have benign race relations, harmonious race relations if um, you're the last country to abolish slavery, right? And um, this was also the year that Barack Obama was the president. And there were all of these discourses about post-racialism and so I learned that that discourse about Brazil being racially harmonious was called racial democracy. And I saw a lot of similarities and parallels between what I had experienced in Kansas, what, what, what 
the country was experiencing in 2012 and the what I was being exposed to with Brazil. And so I decided that that was something that I could focus on more um, as an undergraduate. I won a foreign language area studies fellowship to go study abroad in Brazil. Um, I was in the McNair Scholars Program, and so I got to develop research projects on Brazil in my interest. Mm. And then when it came time to, well, before that, um, I think it was the second summer. Yeah, the summer before I graduated college, um, McNair allowed me to do a thing where you could basically do your research at a different institution. Mm. And I was selected for the University of Illinois. And I was working on a project that was based in US history because at the time I wasn't sure whether I wanted to commit to Latin American history or stay with African American history. Um, but I was working with um, a professor there, Sundiata Chajua, and then I noticed that there were people who studied Brazil in his department, in the history department. So I reached out to them and they were very excited, Mark Hertzman and Jerry Davila. Jerry Davila was my advisor and they encouraged me to apply. I applied there and at some other places once I came back to KU. And um, I guess I would say the rest is history. I got into Illinois. Um, they were really, they really wanted me to go. They had a lot of resources for me and what I wanted to study. And so I went there and I studied there and then I got a job here. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's really interesting how you were able to move from Kansas to, or, you know, at least draw like the parallel lines of Kansas to Brazil. To that That's really interesting. Um, and so I do have a question in regards to while you were pursuing this, I don't know, but did you have any, I guess, push or pull or tension with um, either faculty members in terms of how you wanted to go about your research, right? It's, that can always be an issue sometimes, not always, but sometimes that can be an issue where you come in with one thing and then you're pulled into another thing. Um, but how did you either stick to what you came for or grow in tr or how did it grow and transform into something you probably didn't even imagine that it could go you know, in that direction? Well, I would say that um, to the answer, I didn't really have any pushback or, you know, like my advisor, Jerry Davila, is very, very nurturing in the sense that, oh, your project is your project. I'm not trying to clone myself <laughs> into my students. So, um, and that's primarily why I wanted I went to Illinois in the first place because he conveyed to me and his students conveyed to me who are now my colleagues and really good friends that he would always permit the um, most intellectual and creative control possible or 
freedom for our academic work. So our projects were always going to be our projects and he was going to do whatever it took to facilitate them and make sure that they were completed. So I never felt from him any type of, um, oh, you need to do this or you need to do that. He would always give me and his other advisees suggestions and areas of growth and um, cultivated our training in a way that we could grow to do our work in the most expansive ways possible. Because I have a multitude of interests, um, and also because I came into the program very young, I was 23 when I entered my PhD program, you know, you have the sense like, oh, I need to do this, or I need to do that, or um, some sense of insecurity, right? Um, so there were times where I would pull myself away from my own work mm. because I was feeling uncomfortable or insecure about what I was doing. And Jerry would always pull me back or Mark would always pull me back later. And she was very integral to my training, Faye Harrison. She, she's in the Department of Anthropology and um, African-American Studies they'd always pull me back. They're like, you need to center yourself in the type of work that you're doing. You have something important to say. You have an important contribution, but you have to stay and do the work of the growing in that, um, in that training, in that expertise, in that study, in that research, right? Every part of graduate school is not roses and daffodils and everything there are some points that feel like pressure points mm -hmm. but it's to help you grow right and so um looking back i wish <laughs> sometimes i didn't try to flee <laughs> from those things but you know i think i did the best that i could and they did keep me grounded and my colleagues too kept me grounded as well yeah, that's um, it. I'm I'm sure having that nurturing environment always makes a difference. And so, when you started, what are the different ways your ideas grew, especially in terms of you know the, the the terminologies that you're like the colorblinded racism, you know? And it's it's really interesting for you to be like, well, I felt this, <laughs> um, and I don't know if this is I don't know if this is a West African thing, but I was also taught like now the burden of proof is on you <laughs> and you have to go out and search for it and I'm like well now I'm in doctorate school so I, I should probably go back to my parents and be like you know how I got here is you pretty much told me to go out there and find the answer so that's what I'm doing so as soon as you said that I was like oh, those words are so familiar um, but how how did you grow in terms of how did your ideas grow and transform in ways that you expected and also didn't expect? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one, a thing that I think listeners should remember, whether they're thinking about grad school or they're about ready to go into grad school in the fall, is that what you propose to do and your um, statement of purpose 
is rarely going to stay the same. And that's because you're going to take classes, you're going to have conversations with other scholars, you're going to meet different people when you do your research, right? You're going to be reading a whole lot of things. And so that's what happened to me. Um, again, my advisor, I'm indebted to Jerry because not only did he facilitate this very open environment, he encouraged me, oh, you're, you should take a class with this person or this person speaks to your interest. You should have a coffee with them. He would always facilitate these meeting points. Um, he was adamant that I read scholarship, not only in English, but in Portuguese being produced in Brazil, right? Um, which also speaks to the training he received as a graduate student. Um, so all of these different me mechanisms, it was like, I was encouraged to think of myself as being part of a broader academic community that it wasn't just the work that I did in history, but there were all of these sticking points in different disciplines and in different programs and different subfields of fields, right? Um, so that's how the project grew. Although in an interesting way, I think I proposed in my statement of purpose, a project on, um, how black women were represented in black movements in Brazil and thinking against um, common stereotypes of um, black women figures and archetypes. Um, and I wrote my dissertation on social mobility, but I wrote a lot about black women, <laughs> right? And um, so some things are circular, even though they don't hold the same exact shape or mold that you began with. That's a really good way of putting it. And when you wrote about Black women, you are a Black woman as well, right? So <laughs> you have this, um, there are some you know circles in academia that speak about objectivity versus subjectivity and how you can't be too close to what you're writing about or else there's not enough of this critical distance and um, now there's a stain <laughs> or, you know, they, I've, I've always seen it that way. It's like, why are you making the work look like it's stained? Because, you know, um, there's like a subjective approach to it. Now I, I know my thoughts. I'm like, well, I subjectivity never hurt anybody. I think we actually need it <laughs> more than it's, um, you know, just, I guess, looked down upon in some circles, but what do you think and how how did you navigate between those two realms of objectivity and subjectivity in academia? Oh, that is a, that's, all of these questions are very good. Um, let's see. Well, first of all, I reject the premise that um, there's such a thing as objectivity. Mm -hmm. We are human beings. We, in my field of study history, it's part of the humanities. We're studying um, human phenomena. Also, I'm a historian of race relations. And what becomes clear 
and the history of race relations is how fields of studies, fields of study, disciplines were constructed to uphold white supremacy or anti-blackness or misogynoir, right? Um, as somebody who studies race in Brazil in the field of history, um, at the time that I entered my program, I was only aware of one or two Black women with tenured positions who studied Brazil, Brazilian history, and specifically mm. histories of race. I said two. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought I was the only one who was trying to do that mm. at the time that I entered my program. Um, when I went to do my dissertation field work, I discovered there was another person. And then by the time I graduated, I think there were like maybe 10 or 12, right? But the field has been driven and constructed, at least in the United States, but also in Brazil, primarily by white people. So you can't enter the field I mean, well, you can't, but <laughs> I could not afford to enter the field without a reckoning and a, an awareness mm. of that, right? Or when I would go into the field, I suffered a lot of um, sexual harassment, which has everything to do with the way that my body was being sexualized and exotified as a dark-skinned Black woman. Mm. Um, in a society where that is a sexualized thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I can't be subjective about it or objective about it. Mm -hmm. But what one calls objectivity might also be a type of paternalism, a type of um, Europhilic or Eurocentric um, logic, right, which also organizes things like archives, right? Um, it was really hard for me to find a lot of the information I was looking for because there was a presumption that the subjects or the topics that I was trying to think through didn't exist, mm. that they were contemporary, right, that because slavery ended in 1888, that um, black people had not gained enough education or um, institutional presence to warrant the type of um, um, categories that I would find in an archive. And so in tandem with other researchers in Brazil, I had to think through the logics of the archive and we all had to <laughs> agree Mm -hmm. You know, from my advisor to everybody else that these aren't subjective mm -hmm. or these aren't objective. These are subjective categories that we have to unpack, that we have to deconstruct. Right. So um, I don't think we have to run away from our subjectivity. Right. A lot of us have been denied subjecthood me including my subjects. I think what um, 
I insist upon is that we, we utilize that connection as a type of power. We don't confuse ourselves with our subjects, mm -hmm. right? Because this is very intimate work. And sometimes if you're not careful, you can get too, you forget where you start and where you end, right? Um, but subjectivity does not mean a lack of rigor. And I think because we have to create frameworks in order to do the work that we do, it becomes extremely rigorous mm -hmm. work, right? Um, I, in graduate school, I experienced um, kinds of bullying or hazing, not from my colleagues, like my, my, um, my advisors, advisees, or um, other professors, but from people outside of my area in my department who, you know, before I was like, why are they being rude to me? But I think it was part like um, intimidation. Um, I was young. I was a Black woman. Um, I didn't have a master's degree, all of these things. And it can really upset you. But um, eventually those things fall away, especially if you're really focused on your work. That doesn't mean to not advocate for yourself, which I did. I did advocate for myself. But you know what Beyonce says? <laughs> your best revenge is your paper. So keep keep doing you find allies so mentorship is really important but mm. not only mentorship sponsors mm. so the difference between a mentor and a sponsor is that the mentor is um, dedicated to your growth over a long period of time whereas a sponsor is the person who's also invested in it but is doing um, advocacy work for you when you're not in the room. Mm. So let's say you are um, putting in some application somewhere, right? The sponsor is the person who may chat about you to somebody on um, a committee or something. Mm. And then that person, that other person makes their way back to whoever's looking <laughs> at your, your application, right? They're the, it's the unhidden curricula, or it's the hidden curricula aspect of the academy. So you need, you need a community of people who are invested in you. A very good advisor, um, a cohort of people who are there to support you, right? So your fellow students who you may share the same advisor, or you're in the same sub area within your program, um, those people who can lift you up, um, people that you can meet outside of your department or your institution who can do the same, mentors, because your advisor can't do everything for you, mm -hmm. <laughs> and sponsors, right? Like this community is going to fulfill your academic, your intellectual life. 
So that's what you, or I should say, that's what helped me move through the program, um, navigating certain obstacles. So thank you for sharing that. And sorry that you experienced the sexual harassment while you were on the field and the bullying. Um, but I'm glad you put out that Beyonce quote. <laughs> it's, so, it's funny. So when you said the best um, revenge is your paper, I'm like, yeah, the dissertation. And I was like, wait, no, she meant money. But in this case, it's a pun for graduate students. <laughs> because really your best revenge against, I guess naysayers would be both the money and the actual papers you produced. <laughs> yeah, but I think, both of those ends come from what I think Beyonce actually means because if you um, study, <laughs> I'm talking as if I'm a Beyonce scholar, which I'm not, <laughs> but uh, I'm just a stan. But um, she always talks about persistence. And I think that's something that is underemphasized in academia is like, you have to be persistent, not just resilient, not just lucky. We see people's CVs where like, oh, oh my goodness, look at her. Or, you know, we go to conferences and like, oh my God, I love this person's work. And, you know, we see the end result, but we don't see the, the setbacks. We don't see um, the day-to-day -day aspects of our work, right? But one of the things that's really important is persistence, that you keep going. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you persist into, you know, doing work and not taking care of yourself, right? And it doesn't mean that that's, persistence is the only way forward because personally speaking, I had a lot of um, advantages in terms of I didn't have student loan debt. Um, I had a family that was willing to support some of my pursuits um, financially. And I don't mean my academic work, but, oh, I'm going to take care of this car payment for you or um, for insurance or um, I will do the like just simple mm -hmm. things, right? Not everybody has that. Not everybody is free from undergrad, like college debt. Mm -hmm. Some people are married, some people have children. Um, I didn't have certain things that would take away from my time or um, would put a burden on me financially. I'm also a U.S. citizen, which is another aspect of privilege mm -hmm. that we don't really talk about um, in the academy, or the burden is on international students to talk about and bring up all the time. So those things are true. But that aside, persistence, persevering, keeping it pushing, that is made possible by having this extensive community that I'm talking about, cultivating this rich intellectual life through the relationships that you forge with people who want to support you and see you be successful. 
Um, so I think that's ultimately why all of those things together were what encouraged me to get to a place where I could be successful in my pursuit of a job, right? Um, which is what I was wanting the entire time, but was never guaranteed because in history, the job market has collapsed. Um, only a quarter of people who graduate every year are going to obtain a tenure track job. So it's a very precarious situation. And I guess, you know, while you have that information at the forefront of your mind, well, I don't know if it's at the forefront, but it, you know, it is in the background of, I don't know if I'll get a job later. How did you, what, what were some of the things that you, that kept you in persisting forward? You know, so you mentioned the community, but is, I guess, is there something else that also helped you know, like a, a must, because there's a sort of muscle you grow while you're in graduate school. I don't know the name yet. Um, <laughs> I don't. I just know it's um, it it's worth. It's it's a little bit. You can't just say, oh well, resilience or. But there's a sort of muscle that you grow in um, in graduate school. But while you know that information, you still persisted forward, right? So what? What I guess what are what helped. I know that's, a, I don't know if it's a tricky question, but I guess just, just thinking about while you were writing your dissertation <laughs> or every time someone said, well, you may not get a job later and you still were like, well, I'm still going to read this book and then the next, and I will write this paper <laughs> and I will continue. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it to answer your question is like, I wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. I I knew from the very beginning when I was 20 and, you know, switched majors that the job market was bad. It was bad 10 years ago <laughs> when I started this journey. Um, so I knew that going in, um, but I think what was, what I tried to do was like, I had to make deliberate choices mm. in terms of, you know, I don't have control of the job market, but what can I do to put myself in a comfortable position if I were in a place to get a job, right? Mm. So I went to a program in the Midwest, right? That was seven hours away. The cost of living was very similar. I, this institution had an institute, it still does, has had an institute of Brazilian studies being funded by the wealthiest man in Brazil. So I was, <laughs> I, I wasn't going to go without money, mm. right? Um, my advisor had a great track record of um, placing students. Mm. And even though he had moved to Illinois, um, he had only been there maybe three years by the time I got there. By the time I graduated, he had placed all of his students from Illinois. There were four of us. We all have tenure track jobs, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
And he said, I am going to do my best to make sure that you all place. Um, and I did the things that he encouraged me to do, like, oh, you need to interview um, other professors whose work you admire and interview different people at different stages of their career and ask them what that is like. So there was always a, a coming back to, is this still something you want to do? And if yes, this is how I'm going to introduce you to the professionalization mm. of the field, knowing that you may not get the job, but doing um, job application workshops a year early than the year I was going to apply for the job market. Um, really focusing on my dissertation and having a full draft of it um, by the month that I was about to go on the job market. Putting my job materials in order. Um, I've been on the internet for maybe 17 years, so I'm really good at finding stuff. <laughs> I, I, I mean, your podcast is giving resources to people who are thinking about academia. Mm. Well, when I, a couple years ago, I would look for this stuff, this information, like um, books about academia, um, podcasts about academia, podcast interviews, whatever, about women of color, Black women in academia, Facebook groups for Black women in academia, <laughs> right? Talking to people at different stages of the graduate process and the postgraduate process. What were my options? What could I do? Talking to them, reading about them, listening to what they put out on the internet. And so in a sense, I think it matches um, my experience in McNair, but I became overprepared. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, let me know what, what possible outcomes I could have, <laughs> like well informed about them. And mm -hmm. I think, again, all of that, in addition to how well resourced I was, how I didn't have certain burdens that make graduate study hard. The support I had from this community of mentors, sponsors, advisors, professors, colleagues, etc. The professionalization of my advisor, um, in addition to my own initiative, um, winning um, prestigious fellowships and stuff. I think all of that added it increased the possibility of me doing well on the job market. And that has come to pass. So, yeah. And I, I really like what you said in regards to always checking in and doing all this work of, is this what I still want to do? And then going through all the checklist <laughs> and like always going back to like that line and saying, do I still want to do this? Okay then, you know, then it's a, it's a cycle until you get to where you want to go. Um, and you just shared a whole bunch of resources in that last five minutes. <laughs> you know, like all the things that you've done in preparation to get to a place where they once told you like, yeah, this is like quarter, you know, if, <laughs> if, if that. So um, 
but I, I'm I'm happy for you in regard. I I just met you, you know. We, if we're talking as if we know each other for a while, but <laughs> maybe we do. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think that's this is all really great and definitely well deserved. And to to just wrap it up, is there um a particular song or a piece of art or a book that lifted your spirits through your out your acad- academic journey? Um, or maybe the people, I don't, and I know you've mentioned them, um, but anything, I guess, that stuck out? Yeah. Um, so the song that made me love Brazil <laughs> when I was an undergraduate is a song called Alegria, Alegria by Caetano Veloso, who, um, like Gilberto Gil, is, he just holds this mammoth um place in brazilian popular music and he and gilberto gil is his long-term collaborator they created that psychedelic genre of music it's called tropicalia but whenever i would finish something um that song would play in my head because like (laughs) the beginning of it it just opens it's like dun 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 (laughs) it's so good um so that like whenever i would finish a project that was the song that i would just turn on my playlist but um in moments where i was feeling sad or alone or depressed because being a historian it's often solitary work you have to go to an archive you have to hear people say that your ideas are underdeveloped or they're not defined or in some cases they're impossible um at the time my grandmother passed away in the middle of my graduate study Mm -hmm. um and so i would get homesick a lot and feel somewhat um out of place and a song that i would always play is um i think it's called you Ain't Gotta Lie, Mama Said by Kendrick Lamar. It's from mm. the album To Pet a Butterfly. Mm. And um, the song is about, like, you don't have to front. Like, you don't have to pretend to be something else. Because, like, when you come home, you're your mother's son. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of feels like a lullaby to me, even though it's not that. And so... Um, the refrain and the chorus, it would just, I would play that and it would give me a lot of comfort. Um, in when I was writing my dissertation, I made a playlist for myself to keep going. And then I made a playlist for when I was on the job market. <laughs> and I played a lot, a lot of Megan the Stallion. <laughs> a lot of Megan the Stallion. I think Jessica Marie Johnson has said that Megan the Stallion, she embodies a Black girl audacity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also something that is related to that question of persistence that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Is like, ultimately, you have to have audacity to pursue graduate study, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if you're a woman of color, especially if you're a black woman, mm-hmm. because most people don't get PhDs, but even less <laughs> um, do black women or women of color do. And um, you're, 
if you go to a PWI, you're surrounded by messages that you don't belong or, mm-hmm. you know, people will come at you as if like, you don't know what you're talking about or mm-hmm. you don't think or something. Claudia Jones at her immigration trial, um, she said something to the judge. She was like, you're ta- I'm paraphrasing. You're mm-hmm. talking to me as if you believe that black women don't even think mm-hmm. <laughs> or they can't read, they can't <laughs> write, they have no original thoughts of their own, right? Um, And so you have to build yourself up all the time. And the community aspect is integral to that, right? So it wasn't like, again, roses and daffodils and everything was perfect in my graduate time. Sometimes you disagree with people you really cherish and respect and hold in high esteem. But what matters is are those people going to help resolve things, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody on my committee, I can say, could do that. And so I'm indebted to my advisor, Jerry Davila, my um, mentor, my mentors, Mark Hertzman and Faye Harrison, because they always built me up. Mm-hmm. Even when I was doubtful of myself or I feared that a disagreement we had meant that um, our relationship was going to suffer and that didn't happen. Um, So there's that, but it's also like your self-talk, right? Mm -hmm. Some people, they finish their programs out of spite and bitterness. Mm. And that can be helpful at some times, but it's not good for it to be the entire fuel. So you have to have something else. And for me at this stage in my career, it's the communities that I'm a part of and I want to keep growing, the academic communities that I belong to, the communities that I belong to in Brazil, Mm -hmm. um, academic, non-academic. And also how I feel about myself. Mm -hmm. When I was in graduate school, I was very insecure about my writing. Whereas now I can look at it and read it and I'm like, oh, this is hot, <laughs> right? So this brings us back to Megan the Stallion. I was just thinking that. Talking. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not trying to curse, but she's always talking her shit, mm-hmm. right? She's like, I'm Megan. I'm amazing. Uh, my rapping is amazing. Mm-hmm. My flow is amazing. <laughs> this is how I work. I work hard. I work diligently. I'm going to show you the ins and outs of what I do. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like it, which is something Beyonce has said when she's talking about her work, in particular, in this case, it was self-titled. Mm-hmm. If people don't like it, fine. I said what I said. Yeah. <laughs> right? So you have to come to a place where you believe in your work. And it's going to be hard in graduate school because you're in the position of learning, right? You're not going to get to the point of asserting your voice and your authority as a producer of knowledge until you start writing the dissertation. Mm -hmm. But even if it feels uncomfortable, keep leaning into it because that's what makes it worth it, job or not. By the time you finish your degree, mm-hmm. you are the authority. You are that bitch. <laughs> you 
period. <laughs> right? As Megan the Stallion would say. Yeah. Definitely right, like so. how you, you we've put in a bunch of disciplines in the span of <laughs> <laughs> we were like discipline who? So <laughs> we've just decided to take all the the fences out. <laughs> But it's, um, yeah, I, I really do, I guess, you know, I, while I'm going through graduate school, when I'm down, looking at just Black artists and the way they persist forward and produce, because with their, with their music or whether it's a painting or a, or a piece of art or a, they're producing something that is for sure going to get some, you know, some sort of backlash or and they will still unapologetically, unapologetically, you know, put it out. And um, it's very interesting. Kendrick and Beyonce will put things out with no comment or caption. <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, they stand by what they put out and they're like, this is me. And there's things from Beyonce's previous albums where we can all agree that we don't know what that was, but we like the evolution. <laughs> so- you know, so, but then again, she'll still be like, well, that was before and this is me now. So, <laughs> yes, yes, give yourself, give yourself time to breathe, mm-hmm. give yourself time for the work to breathe. There's nothing wrong with being a rookie. This is the moment that you get to be the rookie and to blossom into this beautiful bouquet of roses, right? Mm-hmm. But it takes time. So let yourself cook. Um, be around people who are going to give you the fertilizer mm-hmm. and the sunshine and the water. And you also have to give that to yourself. So you have to make sure that you're living well, you're eating well, you're in good health. Um, the things that you can control, going to therapy, the things that are within your control, really invest in that. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. This was very helpful. <laughs> um, but we really appreciate you coming on and being vulnerable and just sharing your experience. And you're welcome back on anytime. <laughs> thank you for having me.